When I was 16 years old, I fell in love for the first time with the music of an experimental composer. I had no idea he was an experimental composer, and back then I had no clue what that term meant. On the contrary, I loved his music because it was Protestant, as I was, and because he did crazy things with hymn tunes, and because his music sounded like New England in autumn, at least the New England of my imagination, with barn dances and cider barrels, church bells and marching bands. It was music like no other, and it made my imagination run wild. in question, of course, was Charles Ives. That was part of Thanksgiving, the last movement of his Holiday Symphony, in a barnstorming performance by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and Chorus, conducted by Michael Tilson Thomas on the Sony label. I learned that, depending on which view you took, Ives was either the first great figure in something called the American experimental tradition, or he was a precursor of that tradition, which began a few decades later with the music of Henry Cowell and his student John Cage. In my 16-year-old perspective, this didn't make much sense. Stravinsky, at that time, seemed to me just as experimental as Ives, possibly more so because Stravinsky's music was so diverse, with so many different languages and accents and sudden, startling changes of direction, whereas Ives's music, visionary and uplifting though it was, basically all sounded the same. Yet no one called Stravinsky an experimental composer. Insofar as experimental meant anything to me back then, I thought you could apply that word to all of my favourite composers, Beethoven, Berlioz, Chopin. They had all experimented with various elements of music and introduced new things as a result. So what exactly does this term experimental really mean? On mulling this over, I've come up with what seem to me five plausible and reasonably distinct definitions of the term experimental. In this programme, part of my series of audio documentaries entitled Tentative Affinities, I'd like to discuss these five definitions in turn. There may be more than five out there, and I'm most certainly interested in the possibility of a sixth, if anyone can come up with one. So let's think of these definitions as offering five maps of the experimental world, ways of navigating that complex and sometimes daunting terrain. The American experimental tradition is something I've been involved with throughout all of what we might loosely call my professional life, though I've never swallowed it hook, line and sinker. Some American experimental music has changed my whole musical outlook. Some of it leaves me absolutely cold. Thinking of it as a tradition, however, it's never been clear to me why music historians insist that some of these people belong so closely together. The work of Harry Parch and that of John Cage, for example, especially their later work, has really nothing in common and is actually highly antithetical on pretty much every count. 
The argument, I suppose, is that what unites them is their very outsiderness in terms of career path and lifestyle, their distance from the mainstream. Well, maybe, but it doesn't seem very convincing to define a musical tradition in terms of kinships based primarily on non-musical considerations. Things get even more complicated when we discover that several of the composers supposedly at the heart of the experimental tradition shunned the word experimental. Let's take the late great Robert Ashley, whom almost everyone thinks of as the epitome of an experimental composer in the best sense. In case Ashley's work is unfamiliar to you, try a bit of this early experimental classic, The Wolfman, from 1964, for solo vocal performer and tape. You have to imagine the scene. It starts, innocuously enough, in a kind of seedy nightclub ambiance. After a while, a singer enters, wearing dark glasses, and steps up to the microphone. Given the work's title, he may not be quite what he appears. Besides, clearly no one has warned the poor creature about the problem of feedback. The Wolfman, performed by the composer. That's a piece that might either make you a die-hard Ashley fan for life, or leave you wanting to avoid his music forevermore. But in either case, this surely is experimental music, right? Well, Ashley's attitude was not quite so straightforward. I'd like to read part of a CD liner note he wrote in the mid-90s, where he commented that, quote, Composition is anything but experimental. It is the epitome of expertise. It may be aleatoric, or purposefully unpredictable in its specific sounds, or purposefully exploratory of a sound, but experimental is the wrong word. Unquote. And he's not the only composer to have misgivings about the term. Harry Parch quoted with approval the exasperation of a famous artist who protested, You never see my experiments. Let's approach the matter from a different angle and ask when the term experimental music was first used. As you might imagine, this is not so easy to state with certainty. But what we can say is that among the first to advance the idea was John Cage, in an article entitled History of Experimental Music in the United States, written in the late 50s and included in his first book, Silence, in 1961. 
The plot thickens when we discover that in that article, Cage offers not one but two definitions of the term experimental. They're quite different, and we might even think of them as the soft and the hard definition. The soft definition holds that to be experimental involves, quote, the introduction of novel elements into one's music, unquote. As examples of this practice, Cage points to the music of many of the composers now generally considered part of the American experimental tradition, including Carl Ruggles, Leo Ornstein, Dane Rudyard, Alan Hovannis, Lou Harrison, Henry Brandt, Ruth Crawford, Gunther Schuller, Harry Parch and Virgil Thompson. But he feels about their music the way he does about that of Charles Ives, about whom he remarks that much of Ives is no longer experimental. Logically, the novel elements after a time cease to be novel. So this is the first of the five definitions I promised at the beginning of this program. To help highlight them, and to keep them distinct from one another, I'd like to call on my friend Harry Parch and his ensemble for a little assistance. Number one. To be experimental involves, quote, the introduction of novel elements into one's music, unquote. This is one of the definitions proposed by John Cage in the late 1950s. Cage's second definition from the same article has become justly famous. In it he says that an experimental action is, quote, an action the outcome of which is not foreseen. He goes on to relate this to his own work with chance operations and, more essentially, to, quote, composing in such a way that what one does is indeterminate of its performance. He tells us that this type of experimental music is what he now does, what his teacher Henry Cowell sometimes did, and what a few of his younger friends do, notably Earl Brown, Morton Feldman and Christian Wolfe. This is the second of my five definitions, and it can be applied also to the work, or some of the work, of many composers since Cage. OK, so here we go. Number two. An experimental action is, quote, an action the outcome of which is not foreseen. This again is John Cage from his article History of Experimental Music in the United States. Some have argued that this definition actually describes Cage's own work best of all, and is less useful as an overall general definition. While the first part of that may be true, I think it does have some general validity. Here are two examples. The first is Cage's own Variations 4 from 1963, which is written for any number of players producing any sounds by any means, with or without other activities. It's clear that the sonic outcome of any given performance can't be planned in advance and will vary every time the piece is done. Here's part of one of the infinite number of possible realisations from a classic performance Cage himself helped put together at a gallery in Los Angeles in 1965.
Part of John Cage's Variations 4 from a vintage Everest Records LP released in the mid-60s. Another example of a work that exemplifies Cage's second definition, an action the outcome of which is not foreseen, is Alvin Lussier's I Am Sitting in a Room, one of the most famous pieces of experimental music. What will happen to the playback of the voice recording, as it is re-recorded and played back again and again, is entirely dependent on the acoustics of the particular room in which the performance takes place. The sonic outcome is unpredictable. It begins like this. I am sitting in a room different from the one you are in now. I am recording the sound of my speaking voice and I am going to play it back into the room again and again until the resonant frequencies of the room reinforce themselves so that any semblance of my speech with perhaps the exception of rhythm is destroyed. After a few playbacks and re-recordings, the effects of room resonance on the voice is very obvious. I am sitting in a room different from the one you are in now. I am recording the sound of my speaking voice and I am going to play it back into the room again and again until the resonant frequencies of the room reinforce themselves so that any semblance of my speech with perhaps the exception of rhythm is destroyed. Before long it becomes harder to make out the individual words. Until by the end, the sense of speech has been almost entirely obliterated, and what we are hearing are the resonances of the particular room the speaker is sitting in, which will vary considerably and unpredictably from performance to performance.
In the optimistic climate of the late 1950s, when his article History of Experimental Music in the United States was written, Cage apparently had little need to feel that his experimental work had solid historical roots and was more concerned to differentiate it from the work of those earlier Americans, the no longer experimentalists. But he did like the feeling that certain younger contemporaries were keen to share his endeavour. Things are very different with the composer who is in a way Cage's natural successor in the next generation, James Tenney. One of the recurrent themes of Tenney's output is an engagement with the work of other, especially older, composers, and the majority of his compositions bear dedications to a wide range of them whose work he admired. This is as true of early Tenney pieces like Quiet Fan for Eric Satie of 1970 and Spectral Canon for Conlon Nancaro of 1974 as it is of his later works, which bear dedications to, among others, Varese, Cowell, Ruggles, Parch, Volpe, Cage, Zanakis, Feldman, to friends and contemporaries like Harold Budd, Pauline Oliveros, Namjoon Pike, Steve Reich and Lamont Young, and to older figures whom he himself had never known personally, like Ives, Crawford and Chelsea. Here's the beginning of his Chelsea tribute piece, Send for Chelsea, Send spelt S-C-E-N-D, short for Ascend. The beginning of James Tenney's Send for Chelsea of 1996 in a live performance by Klangforum Wien. All of the composers whose names appear in the dedications of Tenney's pieces are experimentalists in at least Cage's first definition. For Tenney, the idea of an American experimental tradition was a living reality, one to which he felt a strong sense of belonging. 
but Tenney had his own definition of experimental, which is different than either of those I mentioned by Cage, whom Tenney regarded as an important mentor and friend. Tenney believed that experimental in music should mean more or less what it does in the sciences. The composer would write a piece of music, try certain things out, then judge if they worked, didn't work, or only partly worked. Then in the next piece, that experiment could be followed up. Like a scientist, one could go further down the same line. I guess all of our music can really be called experimental, he told an interviewer, but in a sense different from how John Cage uses the word, and a bit different from how it's been used to describe the experimental tradition. It's more literally an experiment, like a scientific experiment, and in science, in scientific work, one experiment always does lead to another one. Unquote. The etymology of the word experiment links it to the old French experiment, a trial or test, but also had the sense of practical knowledge. In other words, tennis is the concept of composition as research. By analogy to a research scientist, a composer could test or verify a hypothesis through the medium of music. In short, Number three. An experiment in music is like a scientific experiment, and, as in scientific work, one experiment always does lead to another one. James Tenney This definition seems more inclusive, and in a way more generous than either of Cage's two, because by Tenney's definition, older composers like Carl Ruggles or Ruth Crawford, say, with their explorations of dissonant counterpoint, could be considered as doing research since a new composition would be at least partly an experiment into a specifiable aspect of music that was being tested. Moreover, Tenney's own interest in picking up their explorations of dissonant counterpoint in some of his own later works continues the experiment, and reinforces the idea of an ongoing experimental project across generations, something that Cage's first definition, with its emphasis on the transitory nature of novelty, does not acknowledge. There was an interesting exchange after a lecture Tenney gave at Darmstadt in 1990, when the then young composer Daniel Wolff asked him what advice he would give a young composer operating, Wolff said, within a, quote, post-experimental model, unquote. Tenney replied, There is no such thing as post-experimental. My sense of experimental is just ongoing research. Tenney couldn't accept the concept of post-experimental, as to him there was no end to the musical experiments we could imagine so there would always be such a thing as composition as research, as long as there was such a thing as composition. We might ask exactly what Wolf meant by post-experimental, remembering that this particular exchange took place more than 20 years ago. Post-experimental, with its resonance of terms like post-tonal, post-serial, post-minimal, implies that experimentalism is a historically bounded phenomenon, a period of music history that has now passed, or nearly so. Wolf's term reinforces the idea of experimentalism as an invented tradition, a historical construct with its own particular history and ideology. So, here comes a fourth definition. Number four. Experimental refers to a type of music of a particular historical era, essentially, if not quite exclusively, the music of the 50s, 60s and 70s, stemming from Cage's unforeseeable outcome definition. Such things as Alvin Lussier's music for brainwave phenomena, David Tudor's Forest of Electronica, the indeterminate scores of Earl Brown, Christian Wolfe, Cornelius Cardew, and much else. 
This is important, as we need to remember that the whole idea of experimental music and an experimental tradition does not happen by itself, but must be constructed in various places and by various individuals. Perhaps ironically, for a tradition with such strong American roots, one of the most important of those places was West Germany, especially in the years between the end of World War II and the collapse of the Berlin Wall. The musicologist Amy Beale has shown in her brilliant book New Music, New Allies how it was overwhelmingly this kind of American music, the experimental rather than the more symphonic kind, that was seen as the most important by a number of new music festival directors, composers and critics from the 1950s right through to the 1980s and beyond. A number of young American composers in those years made their name and a sizable part of their income in Europe, using their successes there to try to boost their profile back home. Going further, and following the ideas of art historian Howard Becker in his book Art Worlds, we must remember that an experimental music world, or more colloquially an experimental music scene, has to be constructed through a dynamic relationship between agents and mediating factors. If the agents, in this case, have mostly been the composers themselves, the mediating factors comprise a complex network of festivals, foundations, academic institutions, venues, private patrons, performers, publishers, publicists, critics, musicologists, and so on. Collectively, this network sustains, ideologically and practically, the idea of an experimental scene or an experimental tradition by boosting the dissemination and consumption of this music. Financially, the experimental scene has always been sustained by a mixture of institutional and foundation support and, crucially, by support from private patrons. Probably the earliest such individual to support experimental music, at least in definitions numbers 1 and 3, was none other than Charles Ives, who, beginning in the late 1920s, funded Henry Cowell's new music edition of scores and recordings. Later, from the 1960s onwards, a great many experimental composers, especially on the West Coast, benefited from the largesse of the late Betty Freeman, including Parch, Lou Harrison, Steve Reich, Peter Garland and others. Many of the great experimental music studio spaces, like Phil Niblock's Experimental Intermedia in New York, Walter Zimmermann's Beginner Studio or Johannes Fritsch's Feedback Studio, both in Cologne, would never have survived as long as they did if they were purely dependent on institutional funding. In other words, all this and more is necessary to create an experimental scene, after which it is possible, arguably, to be post-experimental. Another important component in the creation of an experimental world has been scholarship. One of the first, and still one of the most influential books to discuss the subject, was Michael Nyman's Experimental Music, written in the 1970s and reprinted largely unchanged in 1999. There, he says, in essence... Number five. Experimental is all the interesting new music that isn't avant-garde. Avant-garde music, Nyman argues, the music of Stockhausen, Berio, Boulez and others, derives from the great traditions of Western music, whereas experimental music does not and comes from other sources, including non-literate or perhaps post-literate ones. So this is an ideological and even a political distinction. This would be not a bad rule of thumb of what experimental music is, were it not for the large amount of interesting music that lies in the grey area between the two. If we divide the world into avant-garde and experimental, where do we place a composer like Feldman? Or Zanakis? Does his music really derive from the great traditions of Western music? 
Or how about this? Compare Ligeti's Poème Symphonique for 100 metronomes with Alvin Lussier's Clocker for amplified clock, performer with galvanic skin response sensor and digital delay system. They're somewhat similar concepts, both problematizing timekeeping devices of different kinds, and the sound of each, while distinct, has a lot in common. One piece might easily be mistaken for the other by a listener who did not know them particularly well. So, do we think Ligeti's piece is avant-garde and Lucier's experimental? And if so, isn't this not so much because of the way they sound or the way they're made, but because we're familiar with the rest of the two composers' outputs? Extracts from Ligeti's Poème Symphonique for 100 metronomes from a recording on the Sony label and Alvin Lussier's Clocker on the Lovely Music label. We live at a time when experimental music is thriving. There are scenes in different places. There are venues, websites, record labels, ensembles devoted to this kind of music, or more accurately, these kinds of music. But there are, of course, drawbacks, in that once a scene is in place, Quite a lot that can flourish within it loses sight of the original impulse that led to its creation. Some of what gets called and packaged as experimental music today seems to me not really experimental because, paradoxically, it fits neatly within now familiar techniques and practices of the experimental tradition. Genuinely experimental work, the work that takes risks and asks provocative new questions about method, material, working practices and everything else, remains as rare and as precious as ever. Nonetheless, experimental work in my own preferred definition, that of Tenney, definition number three, is alive and well, and thriving in the music of the younger generation. As regards the work of older composers, I'm of the opinion that some music is inherently, not temporarily, experimental. Let's put it this way. It's hard to imagine a time when a piece of music that explores the rhythmic proportion of two in the time of the square root of two will ever not be considered experimental. It seems to me that the map of the experimental world is not yet, and perhaps, as James Tenney believed, never will be, complete. Thank you for listening to Tentative Affinities. We end with that difficult-to-dance-to groove of two in the time of the square root of two, as found in Conlon Nancaro's Study for Player Piano, number 33.